writing is the way that people can come in to intimate contact with one another and be candid and share experiences. It's an assault on loneliness. It can be instructive too. Welcome to the Book Society podcast. My guest today is esteemed and best-selling author Benjamin Cheever, author of four novels and several nonfiction books and a children's book. Brilliant guy, a brilliant book talker, a brilliant book reader, and I'm honored to have him on the show. The book he chose is The Ghost by Robert Harris, known colloquially and in the films as The Ghost Writer, a film directed by Roman Polanski. Ben Cheever, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. This particular book, I like it because it's much better than it's considered to be. I mean, Gatsby's a great book, but everybody knows Gatsby's a great book. And even if you put Ghostwriter into Amazon, you get the Philip Roth book first. So I've listened to the Ghostwriter, and it's a wonderful reading, too. Oh, fantastic. So one of the things on this podcast is that we don't shy away from spoilers. This book's been out for 15 years, at least. It's a movie with Pierce Brosnan and... Directed by another scandal. Yeah, Roman Polanski. He's got his own thing. You can look him up if you don't know. But yeah, it's already filmed. So if you haven't seen it or read it already, you're probably not going to. So we don't worry about spoilers. But it was a fantastic book. I mean, I actually thought it was kind of an okay movie, but it really was a great book. That's exactly right. But the book is so brilliant in so many ways. And when you listen to it the second or third time, you realize that every little detail is advancing the plot. He was prime minister of England. It turns out to be he was really just a shell operated by his wife. And you don't know that, but you do hear that he played in Faust. There are all these little clues, which when you go over it the second time, you realize how brilliantly Harris has put this book together. It's a great thriller. I think the hallmark of a thriller is you should have known from the first word exactly what was going down. And it was in the text, but you missed it. And when it all comes together, you go, oh my God. What a genius. And the fact that the prime minister character starts as an actor among East Coast and British patrician circles, there is this Roman disdain for actors. Whereas here in Hollywood, where I live, we revere them highly because they're the ones who bring the message to the people. And at the end of the day, in this book, she was not the prime minister. She might have accomplished her CIA objectives, but really he was the one who history will remember. The way I read it, he was her creature. And she was the creature of the CIA, which it seems completely plausible, <laughs> but also it just makes a, a terrific story. And Reese does such a great reading. He does enough of the different voices. And you notice that the ghostwriter, we never hear his name. We don't know what his name is. The narrator and the main character, you never hear his name. The prime minister calls him Jack. And he says, he called me Jack. And one of the assistants says, oh, that's what he calls everyone if he doesn't remember their name. <laughs> that's right. Someone had to point out to me that you don't know the narrator's name in Fight Club. Yeah, that's really interesting. I don't read a lot in this genre. So I was really struck by the stylistic things in Thriller that I never noticed. For example, the really heavy emphasis on location and place and just these cascading similes. It was like watching a thing on the thing, like a thing with another thing. But they're really evocative and you just get lost in them and you really feel like you are where he describes. Another thing, I really felt like Martha's Vineyard was kind of a character in this book. It is, absolutely. If you were really interested in being a writer, listen to this three or four times because you're not going to get it the first time. 
a lot of it you don't get the second time. And then you realize that it's very, very hard to do and very rare, actually. We think in words. There's a microsecond before it becomes a word, but what goes through our mind is influenced by our command and understanding of language. So I think of language as a continuum because I wonder if this is true with music. To write, you have to engage personally. Everybody thinks that everything they write is magnificent. They think it's magnificent. <laughs> don't they? I don't know. <laughs> I'm well aware that some of the stuff that I write, including some of the music that I write, is non-magnificent. I have trade secrets to make it sound passable. Some of the stuff I write I think is great, but some of it I'm like, okay, well, this is going to work for the thing that the client is paying me to make it work for. And that's about as far as it goes. And it really depends on the day. And there's some stuff I write where I think this really has no use in a advertising or storytelling setting, but it's music and I like it and I like listening to it. And maybe someone else would like listening to it. I definitely don't think everything I write is brilliant. I'm troubled because of the little teaching I've done by the fact that people, they're appropriately attached emotionally to what they've produced and so attached. And this is not just true of writing. I find it true in the world of general that to suggest change is to assault their ego. It's as if you're operating on their abdomen when you say you could lose that third paragraph. That's the difference between an amateur and a professional, though. That really is the difference is that I'm in the process of writing a book right now. I've got the proposal out and I've been writing this proposal with my agent for two years and it has just been shot down basically every two weeks for the last two years. But because I'm a musician and because I've been dealing with rejection my entire life, this is just a part of my life. I understand that this is part of the process and that it ultimately makes the work better. But if you're teaching undergrads or you're teaching younger people, it's hard to explain that to them. And it's understandable that they might have to come to that roundabout because it's part of the myth of the creative genius in our culture. We have this myth that Mozart, for example, wrote everything out in a first draft in pen on manuscript paper. And analyzing his manuscripts, you can see that that was not true. He made as many mistakes as anybody. So when you're young and you think, okay, I want to be in this pantheon, I want to be a Mozart or a Benjamin Cheever. And so what I need to do is start now and never make a mistake. <laughs> and that's what you think until you are disabused of that notion by professionals who have been working in the field for many years. But that process, I think, can be very, very painful. It's a collaboration. And one of the interesting things about the Roth book is that he had a bunch of readers. You think of Roth as a single man, an artist. It was a moving group. There weren't the same people for every book, but he had a bunch of people he really trusted who were reading his books and coming back to him. And he was taking their suggestions often. Yes, yeah, so like focus grouping. Yeah, except focus grouping as it really exists is often a fraud. Because I was actually in, when I held all those jobs, I went to a couple of focus groups and you could see that the corporation had set the focus group up to give the answer that they wanted. It was for the phone company. They wanted it to offer a new package. And so they hired a bunch of us to ratify their decision. <laughs> I also tasted potato chips and they'd made up their mind about the potato chips. <laughs> Maybe I'm more cynical than you are, but there must be cases where people have a focus group and they say, no, we should change. Probably the most painful thing I've ever seen in my life, or maybe the most terrifying, but ASCAP runs a musical theater workshop. And the way that it's done is, let's say, four composers 
work up three or four songs over the course of a couple of months, and then they perform them in front of a panel. And the panel is Stephen Sondheim <laughs> and like some other really just well-known, established legends of musical theater. And it's in the theater, but this panel is sitting at like a judging table, like American <laughs> Idol. And so these people come out, they perform their songs, and then they get notes in front of an audience from this esteemed panel. They don't pull any punches. I've been to this event a couple times and it's great. I'm sure that it makes the musicals better, but I can't think of anything more terrifying. It would be like if you and Robert Harris and Malcolm Gladwell were tearing apart my book in front of an audience at a speaking engagement. <laughs> you know, I can't imagine anything worse than that, but that makes it better. So what do you think writing is? Writing is the way that people can come in to intimate contact with one another and be candid and share experiences. It's an assault on loneliness. It can be instructive too. If a tree falls down over the road and someone's riding up that road, you can say to them, don't go up that road because a tree has fallen. My favorite simile for the writer was that people are in evening dress and they're waiting to go to what's supposed to be a great show. But the entrance to the show is a culvert high enough culvert so you can walk through it. And they go in, they go in at about 15 yards and there are people there waiting with ax hats, <laughs> really beating them up. And then they come out the end. And then they come back past the other people who are waiting to go in. And I always thought the writer was the one who said, don't go in there. <laughs> don't go in there. I don't care if you have a babysitter. I don't care how valuable that ticket is. Don't go in there. And other people, the writer gives real information where other people are less apt to do it. That's one of the things I think. That implies that the writer has to go through something in order to write about it. Do you think that that's true? Dora Wealthy or somebody said that anyone who's had a childhood knows enough about tragedy to, <laughs> to write for the rest of their lives. I mean, you don't get picked up at school or you're disliked. Well, I mean, things happen. It's got wonderful long ecstatic periods, but there is suffering and sometimes it can be avoided. Sometimes the older person can tell the younger person, don't put nails in your scrambled eggs. I know it seems like a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> There's a book I read that I was very moved by called Surveillance Capitalism. Oh yeah, Shoshana Zuboff. She takes her point a little too far, but I think the observations she's making a lot of them are true. Just for the listeners who have not heard of this book, she essentially makes the case that through increased surveillance online, that that is really the only way that tech companies in the future are going to make any money. And the way that they make money now is by trying to predict human behavior by capturing as much data as possible, which essentially means spying on you and that you as the user are complicit because you're buying their devices and putting them in your home and giving them all this data. And at this particular moment, it is more and less benevolent, or at least it is only malevolent to the degree that they want to use it to sell you stuff. But it's turnkey tyranny, which is, I think, something that Snowden said. And her data and her research is just fantastic and terrifying. Ben, I want to ask you a question that is completely off the topic. We're coming towards the end here. Ben and I have known each other for many years, but the last time we hung out, I was into running. We went running in Picantico Hills one time. It was fantastic. And then your book Running had just come out. And I read it and I loved it. And I have it in my library. I don't have it in my hand, but it's right in the other room. I would like you, if you wouldn't mind, tell us the story of the Madoc Marathon. Tell us what that is like and what it was like for you. 
The Madoc Marathon in a line is the marathon where they serve wine at the water stops. Food and Wine sent me there. And among the people who read that book was my daughter-in-law. And she was going to run the Philadelphia Marathon. And then she got pregnant. So she said, if I'm going to run one marathon, I want to run the Madoc Marathon. So we ran it again as a family the year before last in 2019. Everyone wears costumes. Andrew was Godzilla. Jen, my daughter-in-law, was Catwoman. John was Batman, pretty unconvincing Batman. And I was quite an unconvincing Superman. I had a nice cape, but I gave it up at about mile eight. (laughs) (laughs) But you go three miles. And then I kept thinking, this is one I couldn't afford at home. Most marathons, you get Gatorade or water and it's held out and it's in a paper cup. But at the Medoc Marathon, you run into a chateau and there's a table with linen cloth on it and somebody in a good shirt and he gives you a glass of wine that you ordinarily couldn't afford. And they also have oysters, (laughs) sausage. It's so French. This is why the Nazis were able to just waltz right in there. But it's also why the French survived. (laughs) But anyway, that was a great experience. And we did it again. Awesome. I love it. So Ben, I'm going to end the podcast the way we always end it by asking you to recommend two books for our audience, one by a living author and one by a deceased author. If I'm going to be the hard guy I pretended to be during this interview, then I would recommend Surviving Surveillance Capitalism. It's a long slog, but it's a really, really valuable book. One not living Right now, and this is as easy as surveillance capitalism is hard, I think everyone should read Animal Farm. It's fascism in a terrarium. It's how you grow fascism. (laughs) It's funny, it's light, it seems to be about a farm, but it's really about how you grow fascism. I'm going to echo that to all our listeners. You can read it in an afternoon, and it is fantastic. That's one of the things that's fascinating about literature, is how prescient it is. Because you read these books and you think, oh, that's a good story. For instance, I just listened again to The Enormous Radio by E.E. Cummings. What's a story about people who get a radio and then suddenly they can hear everyone else in the apartment building. And at first they're excited and laughing and then they're terribly saddened by it. And then they get the radio fixed and then they've completely lost their humanity. And I thought, God. (laughs) This is social media in three pages. Yeah, that's quite the metaphor. Also, I didn't say this because this is not part of your professional bio, or maybe it is. But anyway, Benjamin Cheever is a second generation writer and the son of John Cheever, the best-selling writer. We've never really talked about this, but I think one of the reasons that we get along is I'm also a second generation writer. And my mom, who was on the podcast, is a bit of a writing celebrity, certainly among Puerto Ricans. And it's its own thing. But I think we've so far both forged our own paths. You're definitely the only writer I know who's run the Madoc Marathon. (laughs) I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate your insight. I loved this book. Also, it should be noted that the book is called The Ghost. The film is called The Ghost Rider. If you don't know thrillers and you don't mind wading through a lot of racism and anti-Semitism and classism, if you haven't read the Ian Fleming books, read them. They made books out of the Bond movies? (laughs) 